Second Chronicles 18. Second Chronicles 18. The message tonight is entitled, More Isn't Always Better. More isn't always better. The world tells us it is, and the more we have, the better off we are. And, uh, well, not according to God's word. The man who has a lot that is based on worldly standards always seems to want more. They never have enough. And when they're in that, that pursuit to get more, they don't pay attention to the more important things that they should be concerned about. And unfortunately, this is a common thing. Those who have a lot, they want more. The bank account, never big enough for a man who's chasing after wealth. Their position is not high enough when it's you know prestigious titles that, that they're looking for. Their authority is never great enough for the one who wants more power. Now, men or women, whoever, they may have plenty of riches and honor, but they're usually not satisfied without getting that one more thing. Never think that when you've reached a certain worldly status that you'll be happy, that you'll be satisfied, and that you won't want anything more. Now, people set goals, and there's, that's okay. Some people set goals like, you know, when I get the house uh, and, 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 I, and I get the right car and I have the right job and I have the right amount of money in the bank, I'll be okay. I'll be happy. But you'll see that when you reach that desired place in life, there'll be something else that you want. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied here in that proverb, the grave is characterized as having an appetite. And it seems like it always wants another live person dead. In the same way, the eyes of man are never satisfied, Solomon said. People are always wanting to see new things. They're always wanting to own new things. Solomon also said in Ecclesiastes 1.8, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with, uh, filled with hearing. So why is it that man always wants something new? Because you see, in this world, <clears throat> eventually, those things lose their luster, their shine, their excitement, their draw. And, and people are wanting something else to distract them or to deliver them from their difficulties. Solomon tells us why men and women are not satisfied with life. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says, because God has put eternity in their heart. We have this eternity-shaped heart that only God can fill because he's the only eternal. Whatever else we try to stick in that eternal-shaped you know, heart is not going to fit and it's not going to make us happy. Only the eternal living God will make us happy. He's the only one who will satisfy him. Apart from him, we'll never be satisfied. The eye can't be satisfied until it sees the hand of God. The ear can't be satisfied until it hears the voice of God. The world doesn't offer anything new. Dr. Harry Ironsides used to say this, If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Whatever is new is simply a recombination of the old. Satan takes everything that's already existed, he wraps it in some new wrapping paper, and he presents it to you as something new. It's not new. It's just a recombination of the old. 
You see, man can't create anything new. Because you see, man is the creature. He's not the creator. Thomas Edison, one of the greatest inventors, he, he said that, that, that we're only bringing out the secrets of nature and we're applying them for the happiness of mankind. Only God can create new things. And he starts out by making us new creatures in Christ. And then because we're new creatures in Christ, then we walk in the newness of life. Then we can sing a new song. And then we can enter into God's presence by a new and living way. And then one day we're going to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth when God says, Behold, I make all things new. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, for Paul, he was able to enjoy life because everything he needed was within. You see, it's a matter of character, not outward circumstances. It's the idea of confidence in Christ, the idea of adequacy in Christ, and not needing anything from the outside. Paul said in Colossians, I'm complete in him. You see, Paul had everything that he needed. He had all the resources within that he needed for facing life courageously and for getting the victory over his difficulties. There's a sin in wanting more. First of all, it's an insult to God because we're saying, God, you, you 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 haven't given me enough. Because again, Well, the thing is, remember, he promised to supply all of my need. He didn't say, I'll supply all that you want. There's a big difference. Secondly, because it usually pushes away the moral desire for more of goodness and fellowship with God to the point that that our our, our desire for God almost disappears. That's why this is a sin to want more. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 9, Godliness with contentment, that is great gain. Godliness with contentment. He said, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So Paul makes it very clear. It's not the outward things. It's the necessities of life that God wants to give us, and, and, and he's, he's promised to take care of us. Let's begin now with verses 1 through 3 of, of chapter 18. And it says, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. After some years, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance for him and the people who were with him. And persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Hey, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat answered, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. Now this was a serious lack of judgment on Jehoshaphat's part. What did Jehoshaphat really gain by making this partnership with Ahab? Well, first of all, it was obvious, it was noticeable by others, and it was just a temporary satisfaction. What did he lose by this arrangement? He lost a lot of permanent good, infinite good. You see, the mistake he made affected the future. It brought evil on hundreds of families, including his own. Now, 
What do we really gain by accumulating more? You know, whether it's possessions or money, titles, power, fame. We, we accumulate only things that add some temporary happiness to this life. But you see, if we're not paying attention to the more important things and we're neglecting those godly responsibilities that we have, and if we're distracting ourselves from God, what are we losing in comparison? Hey, you can't put a value on the kindness and the friendship of Jesus Christ and the integrity of our Christian character, the excellent quality and joy of being used by God. Now, we can have all of this if we don't let earth and earthly and human interests push us away from the higher and the spiritual, more spiritual interests. As God heaps upon us gifts, whatever they are, we should be more closely attached to him and more totally devoted to serving him. And we're guilty of sin if we don't. When we let material things and worldly honors lead us away from God, we're foolish and guilty of sin. Even though Jehoshaphat was sincerely committed to God, he let his son marry Athaliah, who was the daughter of wicked King Ahab of Israel, and then he made a military partnership with him. Now, Jehoshaphat's popularity and power, that made him attractive. It drew others to him. And it made him attractive to the deceitful Ahab. And this partnership between Jehoshaphat and a godly man and King Ahab, an ungodly man, this partnership brought about three destructive results. First of all, it brought God's wrath on Ahab. I'm sorry, on Jehoshaphat. Secondly, when Jehoshaphat died... And Athaliah became queen, her da- his daughter-in-law, and took the throne. It almost destroyed all of David's children. And third, Athaliah brought Israel's evil ways into Judah, which after a while led to the nation's downfall. You see, when believers partner up with unbelievers, their values can be compromised and become spiritually dull. The Bible often warns us against teaming up with unbelievers. You know, Paul made that clear in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in any way. In Jehoshaphat's pursuit of more, of wanting more, it brought to his life spiritual dullness. And then when Jehoshaphat met Ahab, he, he met his match in Ahab. You know, as verse 2 said, he was persuaded. Je- uh, Ahab persuaded Jehoshaphat to join in with him. To go to war with him. The word persuaded means enticed. It means seduced. See, Ahab was a smooth talker. And he decides to throw this big party for Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat gets all excited and and he falls for it. You know, he got the warm fuzzies and all excited. No, Ahab likes me and, you know, know, and he wants to be friends with me. And and he's in a good mood. And and he falls head, head first into this trap that Ahab sits for him. You see, this is why it's so important in our life that we're alert and that we don't let the world persuade us and lull us into a spiritual dullness. Remember when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray? He took some of his disciples with him and he asked them, you know, hey, you know, stay here a while. Stay here with me, you know, for a while while I go and pray. Jesus comes back and he finds them sleeping. And he says, hey, guys. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. 
And the way this, this is written in the Greek, when Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, the way it's written in the Greek, it carries the idea of continuous action. And otherwise, disciples keep watching and keep praying. The need for spiritual watchfulness is not just an occasional thing. It's to be a constant thing. Because your enemy, my enemy, he never sleeps. He's always planning while we're sleeping at night. He's planning. He's looking for a way to trip us up. And he can't wait for us to get up so he can go at it. Jesus was warning his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to be observant enough to know, you guys, you're in a spiritual battle. You need to be prepared by God. You need to resist the enemy. And Jesus was warning the disciples about the danger of self-confidence, which produces spiritual laziness. I can handle this. I got this. The only way to keep from being overcome by temptation is to be aware of Satan's craftiness. And, And Paul says, don't be ignorant of his devices. And not only that, go immediately to our to your heavenly father in prayer when we're already under attack. But you know what? Pray even in expectation of coming temptation because it will not end at the one we're going through. There will be more. There will always be temptations brought forth by Satan in our life. We need to pray even for those future temptations that will come. We need to be prepared for battle. We can't overcome Satan in the flesh. We can't overpower Satan in our own power. And we risk serious spiritual disaster when we think that we can. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was teaching the disciples that those who are alert in prayer and depend upon their Heavenly Father, they will get the spiritual victory. The other lesson that the disciples learned, first of all, was that self-confidence and not being prepared are the way to sure spiritual defeat. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Jehoshaphat, in verse 3, is asked by Ahab. Notice he says, Jehoshaphat, will you go up with me against Ramoth Gilead? Will you go up there too, so that we can take over that city? And, and Jehoshaphat, well, of course. We're family now, you know. His son married uh, uh, Athaliah, uh, Ahab's uh, daughter. So now, you know, they're, they're, they're family, they're related. He says, hey, we'll go to war with you. Be careful. Be careful who you make friends with. Jehoshaphat did a dumb thing in, de- in developing a close relationship with Ahab. Think about it. There's no way that a man like Ahab could possibly help Jehoshaphat. Second Corinthians 19, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 19.2, we'll see it next week. It says, we shouldn't love those who hate the Lord. We shouldn't love those that hate the Lord. It's so important that you choose your friends wisely. Because a mistake could mean bitter disappointment. It could, be, it could mean unbelievable and long-term misery. Now, one foolish act could cause you misery and even ruin the rest of your life and spiritual decline, if not total destruction of your life. Now, look back in some of the guys I used to hang around with. You know, some of them were nuts. And and a a guy came over one time. He said, hey, let's go messing around. So I took off. And next thing I knew, I was in this parking lot. He was breaking windows out of cars and stealing stereos. You know, if you're old enough, you know what stereos were. The little eight tracks and four tracks. And 
I thought, what in the world? I didn't know. He said, you drive, and when I, as soon as I come back, you take off. I thought, I'm, I'm going to get arrested today. Well, that was the last time I, I hung out with that guy. Because it could have really ruined me. I could have, you know, could have got caught out there in the parking lot, and who knows what would have happened. But you have to really be careful. Because, again, you don't know, you know, what, what people are going to do. You may think you know them. But you have to be careful with the, the people you make friends with. Again, it's so important because, again, it could ruin your life. Take your time when it comes to making friends with those that could cause you to lose every good thing that God blesses you with and that you might come in bondage to. Those that, you don't want to, again, give you that first try of drugs. And that same thing with me, a good neighbor that, you know, hey, that's all it took was that one time. And it just it just went from there. Be careful also when encountering the dangers of society. Jehoshaphat might have been attracted by the glitz and the glamour of Ahab's court, where Jezebel was the queen, evil Jezebel. Now, we don't know for sure what attracted, uh, um, again, Jehoshaphat to Ahab. But again, we have to be careful. Be sure, be for sure. Okay, in this case, for sure he should have thought twice. Jehoshaphat should have thought twice before he subjected himself and his staff to that danger. You see, you can't be around social evil very long before you're influenced by it or you're overcome by it. This is where every one of us have to be careful. Because a lot of people take it from granted that they can resist the devil. Oh, I know these people aren't Christians, and I know they're not, you know, walking well. But you know what? They could never change my mind. <laughs> oh, they could never influence me to, to, to believe what they believe or to go, go the way they're going. The corrupting influences of a worldly and ungodly society is a power that we have to deal with very carefully. And people, a lot of times, they just go casually and carelessly into battle uh, with those worldly forces. And you know what? They come out of it beaten up and overcome. We have to be careful because, again, this is, this is the enemy's territory. And when you're in the enemy's company, you're standing on unstable ground. You also have to be careful how, to, how you plan to achieve your goals. It looks like Jehoshaphat agreed to Ahab's plan in verse 2, way too quickly, too quickly. Hey, come on, go with me into battle. Throws him this big party and, and you know, Jehoshaphat goes for it. It was a plan that put himself, his family, his leaders, and his people in a lot of danger. Syria was a power that was not to be ignored. And if it wasn't for the Lord appearing on their behalf, they probably would have been defeated. Why would Jehoshaphat think that the Lord would be on his side when he was walking side by side with a man like Ahab? I mean, it was a really, really strange partnership. It was a strange arrangement. And how quickly he agreed uh, to, to it, you know, this partnership, this alliance, how quickly he agreed to it showed he didn't use any wisdom at all. And before we agree to any arrangement, we need to look at the facts. We need to look at all the possible consequences. And not just how it will affect us, but how it will affect 
others? How will it affect my family? How will it affect those around me? Because we might just go blindly into some venture that's headed for nothing but disaster. And so before you agree to do anything of importance, you should, first of all, carefully think think it through and look at it from all angles. Secondly, get good and godly counsel. And third, pray for God's guidance. Also, be careful to protect your Christian life. Now, some men don't have any plan on how to keep their spiritual integrity and leave it uh, totally to feeling. You know, they go about life and, 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 they, and oh, you know, it, it, you know I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through it because, oh, it feels so right. And because it feels so good, it feels so right, it's so perfect. It has to be God. No. Not necessarily. You know, we do it by impulse. We move by impulse a lot of times. But this isn't very wise either, and it's dangerous. We need to have a plan. We need to carefully keep a disciplined and regular devotional life. And this partnership between Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat and Ahab, I mean, it, it, it seems ridiculous. It seems almost unbelievable. And it's probably one of the strangest ones in the Bible. It's almost like it's almost like saying you can put light and dark together in the same room. And how these two guys got together is a total mystery. Because they don't have anything in common spiritually. Now Jehoshaphat is one of the most godly kings. And God used him to bring revival to his nation. He loves God. He loves God's word. He's a spiritually minded man. Now Ahab, on the other hand, he's as godless as they come. He hates God. He's an idolater and he's immoral. How can these two guys become buddy-buddy? How can they enjoy each other's company? What in the world do they have in common? And that's why Paul you know, said so strongly, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? Second, again, 2 Corinthians 6.14. How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? How in the world did they form this partnership? Well, let's check it out. We've already seen that these two guys had a partnership that was based totally on material and physical reasons. They didn't have anything in common spiritually. First of all, there was the partnership by marriage. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. So the partnership there was based, again, material and physical reasons, on, based on marriage, first of all. She was a, and Athaliah, she was a bloody woman, and she followed in her parents' footsteps. Now, maybe it was because these two men, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, thought they could strengthen their relations between Judah and Israel and bring the two kingdoms together. But what they did was absolutely wrong. This is also a big mistake in our society today. California probably has one of the biggest divorce rates, if not the biggest. And the Bible makes it very clear. A believer and an unbeliever, a Christian and a non-Christian, should not get married under any circumstances. And here Jehoshaphat son Jehoram, in the middle of a revival, marries the heartless, godless daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And that brought disaster and almost wiped out the line of David. 
And there's been more disaster and more heartache and more disappointment and more broken lives, more troubled children because of this one problem of divorce and broken homes than anything else. It will not work for a professing Christian to marry somebody who is not a Christian. You're walking in two different directions. And I had a a, a mother in my office one time who was just beside herself and crying. You know, my children, they're not doing well in school and they're, they're 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 just not behaving and the teachers are talking to me about it and, and, and you know can, can you talk to them can you you know can you tell them to to to, to fly right basically you know and we go on to talking and find out you know, that, that she divorced her, her her husband and and it affected the children that's why god says some things can't be fixed so don't break them the children were broken you know and when we have children they deserve a mom and a dad and because I can't get along with my wife, because maybe we argue, maybe we have differences, you know, I just, hey, well, you know what, let's just forget about it. And she wants me to straighten up her kids. And so I can't do that. They're hurting because of what you and your husband did. Now, there are, yeah, there are definitely circumstances where a couple does, but, you know, when it's just a matter of we can't get along, that doesn't work. And again, the children are greatly affected by it many times. And that's why God says when some, you know, there are just some things that can't be fixed once they're broken. And so, again, um, a believer, an unbeliever in that case, it just is not to be done. Again, Paul writes about this subject in 2 Corinthians 6.14. And God has a lot to say against a Christian deliberately walking into the trap of marrying a non-Christian. And you know, it is a trap. Because Satan makes it look like it'll work. Oh, they're almost a Christian. Oh, they, they like church. And I know he or she, they're, they're almost saved. But the minute you say, I do, how it turns around. And I've seen it over and over and over again over the years. Verses 4 through 5. Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. So Jehoshaphat says here to Ahab, Hey, you know what? Let's find out what God has to say about this move, about us going together to war against Ramoth Gilead. So what does Ahab do? He gets his 400 prophets together. Now, Jehoshaphat didn't want to go to battle without first asking for an answer from the Lord. And that's the way he was. And that's the way it was. for, And that's the way it should be for us, too. Lord, should I do this or should I not? And it's a smart idea and a good habit to seek the mind of God. Now, based on Scripture here, or the lack of it, because it really doesn't say anything, uh, as to what he rushed into this partnership without any godly thought. Because you see, he was a devoted servant of God. He was used to asking for God's will. And no doubt he felt strongly about asking God in this situation because he didn't want to break this good habit when it came to such an important matter of going to war. And this should be our constant habit as well, to ask God about everything we plan to do, especially when it's important matters that are at stake. I mean, who do we think we are that we should lean on our own understanding and that we should trust and can trust in our own wisdom? 
How much do we really know? You see, it's impossible for us to accurately judge those most important and uh, and serious decisions in our life. We can't see the future like God does. We can't see what it holds for us. That's why Jeremiah 10, 23 says, Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. It's not in us to direct our steps. That's why we need a shepherd who leads us and he guides us. Even our greatest wisdom is childish in God's sight. You see, God sees everything from start to finish. It's kind of like at, at a parade. Let's take the Rose Parade, for example. Oh, we get this, this great seat. Man, we're right there. and we can, We're up close and we can see everything that's in front of us. I can't see the, the front or, or the end. All I see right now, I have to wait because I don't know what's... God sees it from his vantage point. He sees the beginning, the end, and in between all at the same time. He sees beginning to end and everything in between all at the same time. All you can, I can see is what passes by me at the moment. I don't know what's coming down at the end. So you see, it's very wise then to make it a habit of continually asking God and seeking his advice and his direction every step of the way in our life. So here, Jehoshaphat wanted to know, Lord, do you want me to go into this battle? Would we win the battle? I think that's an important thing to know. You see, he believed that he might get the instruction and the information that he wanted. Now, we have the promise that we can ask. Jesus said, ask, remember, and you will receive. And James says, you have not because you ask not. We also have the hope that we can hold on to because he is our hope. He is our expectation. And if we're his children and we're reconciled in Christ and we're walking in the fear of God, then we can continually ask and we can confidently expect his guidance from the beginning and his help through all the work that we've started or the duty we're carrying out or the burden we're carrying. Reverently, intelligently, obediently, God will be inquired of by those who love him and by those who serve him. Now, remember, Ahab went and got his 400 prophets. Now, remember, these were the prophets of Baal. So he goes and he gets the 400 prophets that he had. They're prophets of Baal. Remember, those are some of the ones that, that Elisha or Elijah fought up on the, on the hill, on Carmel. Jehor, Jehor, I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat had discernment enough to know these are prophets of Baal. He says, wait a minute, Ahab, you know, is there somebody else here that we can ask? Now look at verses 6 through 27. So they, uh, verse verse, um, 6, it says, But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of? Again, he knew there were prophets of Baal. He said, Is there somebody else that we can talk to here, especially the Lord God? Verse 7, So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there's still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But he says, Notice, I hate him. And here's why. He never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imla. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. And don't talk about the man of God like that. Verse 8. Then the king of Israel called one of his officers and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly. 
The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, clothed in the robes, sat each on his throne, and they sat at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all of the prophets, that is, all the prophets of Baal, prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaneah, had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hands. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord, uh, the king, Therefore, please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. So Ahab's guy comes up to, 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 to uh, the prophet of God, Micaiah, and says, Look, whatever my guys tell you, you tell the king. He wants to tell him the same thing. But he tells him, As the Lord lives, whatever my God says, he says, that's what I will speak. Verse 14. Then he came to the king and the king said, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? refrain? And Micaiah said, go and prosper and they shall be delivered into your hand. Again, he's saying this sarcastically. Verse 15. So the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramath Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaneah, uh, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on the day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction till I return in peace. But Micaiah, Micaiah said, If you ever turn in, return in, pre, in peace, the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. Micaiah is the type of the true prophet of God. He's the man who speaks for God. He faithfully delivers God's word. It doesn't matter how other people might like it or not. And we learn from Micaiah's example that the spokesman for God has to be, number one, unconcerned about numbers. The prophet of God may be greatly outnumbered, but you know what? He must not think about it. You see, truth can't be legislated. It can't be voted on. It can't be decided by a majority. And many times the truth is greatly outnumbered. But you know what? It always ends in victory. We can't worry about numbers. We can't worry about those who are, who are against us when we speak for God. 
And a man who has the truth of God always has God on his side. Secondly, a spokesman for God must not be moved by men's temptations. In other words, the messenger that called Micaiah and took him to the king seems to have used his opportunity in trying to tell Micaiah, look, you know, you, you, you tell the king what he wants to hear, basically. Give him an answer he wants to hear. But, 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 but the, the man that came to Micaiah didn't succeed in getting him, persuading him to tell Ahab what he wanted to hear. And men try so many times to interfere with the servants of truth, with God's word. Sometimes they've succeeded, but when they have, they've failed. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, I do not seek yours, but you. He said in Galatians 1.10, For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We are not to be men pleasers. We are to be God pleasers. You see, this is the attitude and the character of the true prophet, the true man or woman of God. Nobody can whisper in his ear and make him change his mind or change one word of God's message that he delivers from his master. He didn't show any fear of any man's authority. Verses 19 through 22. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab of Israel to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? That he may... uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me... In verses 19 through 22... We already read them. I wanted to point out in verses 19 through 22. It says, And the Lord said, Who can entice King Ahab of Israel to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so that he can be killed? Now, there, there's a, a lot of suggestions that, and that, that finally a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. This, this evil spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. He said, well, how will you do it? The Lord said, and the Spirit replied, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed. Notice the Lord tells this evil, this lying spirit, you're going to succeed. Go ahead and do it. So you see, the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophets, he tells them, for the Lord has pronounced your doom. Now, Micaiah's vision here in these verses can be a little confusing because people see it seems people think that that because this happened it teaches that God is the author of deceit that he's the author who told him go ahead and lie but again it's clearly just one of many examples of the sovereignty of God who doesn't initiate evil but sometimes he allows it to happen for his own purposes you see God will use Satan for his own purposes to accomplish his own will he'll use him as an instrument Spokesman for God must not be moved by affliction and persecution. Micaiah endured the persecution that he went through. He endured the affliction that was placed upon him. You see, he endured the bad treatment and the bad conditions that where he was placed in in verse 23. And when, he, and when the angry king ordered him to be put in prison and then fed bread and water only, notice he still showed a fearless spirit. And he wasn't shaken in the least little bit by the bad treatment that he was getting. The true servant of God will not retaliate. He'll be totally unwavering and carry out his goal no matter how badly he's treated. Also, spokesman for God must be totally attentive to God's voice. Notice in verse 13, he says, Whatever my God says, that I will speak. 
Because you see, only God's words is what will redeem us from sin. Only God's word is what will help us in times of sorrow. And prepare them for the problems and battles of life and to make them ready for the time of God's judgment and eternity. Jeremiah 26, 2 says, this is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord and make an announcement to the people who have come there to worship from all over Judah. Give them my entire message. Include every word. Now, verses 28 through 34. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you put on your robe. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him saying, fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, it is the king of Israel. Therefore they surrounded him to attack, but Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him and God diverted them from him. For so it was when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they had turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I am wounded. The battle increased that day and the king of Israel, which is Ahab, dropped, uh, propped himself up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening and about the time of sunset he died. Now there are some great lessons to be learned here. Now what might be suggested here or what might someone might think out of this is that what happens to us is up to fate. In other words it was, it's just that's just the way it is. It was just it was in the cards. You see Ahab Understand, Ahab was bound to die that day. It wasn't this guy picked up his bow and randomly shot in the air and just happened to hit Ahab. No. You know, when you read it, you may come to the conclusion, well, wow, what a lucky shot. What a coincidence. No, Ahab was bound to die that day. And no matter what he tried to do, notice he even said to, to Joshua, look, you put on the robes of a king and I'm going to disguise, disguise myself. What, what a neat guy. You know, so they'll be shooting at you. They'll think you're the king. But again, it didn't work. He tried disguising himself. No matter what safety measures he took to protect himself, his death was ordered by God. It couldn't be avoided. Thus, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men once to die. But, this isn't, but, but, but coming to this, to this conclusion isn't the wise nor right way of looking at life. That, that, it, that everything is just fate. It's just chance. It's just coincidence. Bad luck or whatever you want to call it. In other words, if Ahab would have been as brave as Jehoshaphat, he, he wouldn't have died the way he did. You see, if he'd been as true to Jehovah as Jehoshaphat was and, shouldn't, and should have been, he wouldn't, you see, he wouldn't have gone up to Ramoth Gilead because he would have been discouraged by the prophet of the Lord who said, don't go, and he wouldn't have died. You see, Ahab's death and the way he died that day was due to his own actions and it was due to his own choices. You see, our destiny is not in the hands of fate, thank God, or some avoidable certainty. 
It exists in our own character. It's the work of our own will. People think that a lot of things, if not most things, are decided by chance, luck, or fate, and not choice. People will say that Ahab's death was the result, again, of an arrow shot randomly by some guy. It just so happened by luck to hit Ahab. Or, you know, or it was just bad luck on Ahab's part that he got hit. People say it's chance that has a big part in how things turn out in life. Wrong. Chance in the sense that it's random lawlessness doesn't exist. If it did, God wouldn't be in control. Everything that happened here to Ahab was according to the law. was according to law. In other words, the commentator said about this, this particular, uh, these verses, the soldier drew his bow as he was told to do. He aimed it at the enemy, though not at anybody in particular. The arrow went on course according to the laws of motion, and it did its job on Ahab in accordance with all the laws of physics. There was no violation of law in the slightest way, though something happened that no man could have designed and predicted. If we succeed, it will be by using the laws of health, of prosperity, and so on. If we fail, it will be in consequence of our disregarding these laws, which are laws of God. Chance will never make us nor hurt us. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said about fate and providence. Spurgeon says, fate says the thing is and must be, so it is decreed. But the true doctrine is God has appointed this and that, not because it must be, but because it's best that it should be. Fate is blind, but the destiny of Scripture is full of eyes. Fate is stern and adamantine, or unyielding, and has no tears for human sorrow, but the arrangements of providence are kind and good. Whatever happens to us in life is because of the infinite, wise God. We may not understand it at the time, but we have to trust in the infinite wisdom of God. That he would never do anything that was unkind to us. And that he's too wise to make a mistake. And he's too powerful to let anybody thwart his purpose and plans for my life. So in closing, if we want more out of life, if we want all that we can get out of life, and if we want the best that life has to offer, don't choose man's way to get it. Choose God's way. How your life turns out isn't left to fate, but providence. Acts 2, 22-24, again, validates this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him is being delivered, how? By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified, put to death, whom God raised up. The Bible says that Calvary was not a mistake. It was all decided way before the world was even created. And it was determined by God and his foreknowledge. Christ's sacrifice for our sins wasn't an oops or an afterthought. It wasn't something God decided to do when it appeared that the world had totally gone out of control. It wasn't plan B. The plan for Calvary was set in motion by the omniscient, eternal God way before the world was created. So here's the point. What you choose to do with Jesus will determine how your life turns out. 
Living without Jesus Christ is like being in the ocean of life on a ship without a rudder. Jesus is the rudder in our life on the sea of life. Without that rudder, you're going to be drifting without direction. And sooner or later, you're going to hit the rocks. And you're going to go down. But living in Christ is a hope that we have, as Hebrews 6, 19 says, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and unswerving. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you for the great and powerful lessons from your word, God. And Father, help us to, again, Father, seek only those relationships, God, that are holy and godly, Lord. It doesn't mean that we we have to ignore those that aren't believers because we have to witness to them. We have to love them. But there's no fellowship. There's no commonality with them, Lord. There's no commonness with them, God. We're two different people. And Lord, help us to know that more isn't better. Jehoshaphat wanted more, but it caused him difficulty. It caused him a lot of problems and those people around him, for the people around him as well. But God, as Paul said, let us be content with food and clothing. Let us be content with what you've given us, Lord. Let us learn how to be content when I have little and, and just as content with, as, when I have much. But Lord, may my eyes be looking at you, God. May you be my focus. May you be my sufficiency. You be my supply. You be my all in all. You be everything that I need, God. Because without you, I'm empty and I'm lost without any direction. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we pray that God's Spirit has spoken to your heart. Opened your heart to see the truth of God's Word. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And as they do, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.